1: which invokes the Notwithstanding Clause in order to implement their gender and pronouns policy schools in Saskatchewan. Essentially, then, uh, those under 16 would have to have parental consent before they go by a different name or referred to uh, with different pronouns. Now, this was something that was likely to end up... Uh, being challenged before the courts. and In fact, there was uh, an injunction granted by a judge at the end of September which paused the government's policy. So Saskatchewan's Premier Scott Moe responded to that by saying he would invoke the notwithstanding clause, which is what they did today.
2: One of the highest priorities, if not the highest priority, of every, uh, every parent across this province is the well-being of their children. Uh, Mr. Speaker. Uh, and that's precisely uh, who we have said on the floor of this legislature in the Rotunda that uh, this government is listening to as we find our way into this House uh, to pass uh, this piece of legislation that uh, up until now has been a, a policy uh, that was in place until recently, uh, Mr. Speaker. A policy uh, also that I would say uh, was in place in a number of school divisions, uh, either by policy or by practice uh, across, across the province, Mr. Speaker, and so most certainly uh, this, most certainly this government uh, is going to uh, ensure that we are doing all we can to support parents, support families. So, Mr. Speaker, whether it be uh, with their involvement in their, their child's education, their child's school, their child's classroom, Mr. Speaker, are supporting uh, those children as well with the, the mental health and all too often subsequent addictions challenges that we have uh, in many of our communities across uh, Saskatchewan and across Canada.
1: So there's already been a lot of debate around the policy itself, but now we've got a new layer to that debate. The use of the notwithstanding clause. Is it appropriate to use here? Is it appropriate to use ever? Section 33 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms outlines the notwithstanding clause, so it is a part of the Charter. But should it be there? There's a new paper out from the Donald Laurier Institute called When Rights Clash, the Notwithstanding Clause in Saskatchewan's Pronoun Policy. makes the argument that this is the kind of situation the clause was designed for, that it's entirely legitimate uh, for legislatures to make use of it. Uh, Joining us to talk more about it is the uh, author of this piece, uh, Dave Snow, an associate professor at the Department of Political Science at the University of Guelph. Professor Snow, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
3: Thanks. Pleasure to be here.
1: Let's start with kind of the overview and what people need to know about uh, Section 33 of the Charter, the Notwithstanding Clause. I think Canadians largely have a kind of a general understanding of what it is, but what do people need to know about it, first of all?
3: Uh, Well, I think the first and most important thing that Canadians need to know is that it is part of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms itself. It's Section 33 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and it permits uh, legislatures to... Um, declare that uh, uh, an act or a portion of an act uh, will operate notwithstanding certain charter provisions for a period of up to five years and then after that that can be reenacted so the two most important features of the notwithstanding clause that I think often get lost is first and foremost that it is a legislative not an executive instrument that is to say it's that the premier cannot simply say I'm invoking the notwithstanding clause and it is invoked but that it needs to be incorporated as part of a bill and go through the normal hurly-burly of of legislative um, debate Uh, and the second thing is that while it is the language of the notwithstanding clause. The language of the Charter says uh, that it it uh, shall operate notwithstanding certain provisions in the Charter. Uh, the, the Charter itself is written in very, very broad language, um, and all rights are subject to reasonable limits. So 41 years after the Charter of Rights and Freedoms uh, has come into being in Canada, what it really means to invoke the notwithstanding clause for a legislature is not to say most of the time, we disagree with these rights per se, right. but we disagree with the judicial interpretation of these rights, as has occurred primarily by the Supreme Court of Canada uh, over the last 40 years, or we we disagree with the expected judicial ter- interpretation of rights based on Supreme Court jurisprudence.
1: Right. And, and it's also worth noting, I mean, it, it is limited in its application. So it's it's about certain sections of the Charter, rulings that might fall under certain sections of the Charter? Yeah, so
3: it is, it is only limited to certain sections of the Charter. Those sections do contain what I think most people um, would refer to as most of our most important rights. Okay. So the fundamental freedoms in Section 2, your right to freedom of expression, freedom of religion, etc., your legal rights in Section 7 to 14, which are, includes the right to life, liberty, security of the person, and the right to equality in Section 15. So its scope is limited in terms of rights. It can't be applied to the right to vote, for example. But beyond the right to vote, I think most would agree that, that the sections to which it can apply are very important important sections and very important rights in the Charter.
1: Yeah, I think we, we people might be more familiar with Quebec's usage of the notwithstanding clause dealing with uh, language rights or even even religious freedom. Uh, this issue in Saskatchewan is, is, I guess, a little bit different, but some of the same principles. And it's also worth note, I mean, your, your piece isn't about the Saskatchewan policy per se, but it is kind of the jumping off point for this this conversation. So where do the, the merits or the lack thereof, I guess, as people would see it of this policy? How does that factor into this debate as you see it?
3: Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to chat uh, with the sort of caveat that I'm by no means an, an expert in either Saskatchewan politics, I, I live in Ontario, uh, or right. on the sort of gender gender pronoun in schools um, issue. Uh, my background is, you know, studying the courts and law and boring notwithstanding clause things. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what struck me about this issue and what, what sort of led to the idea of, of writing the, the paper for the McDonnell-Laurie MacLow, Institute that I wrote was that this is a classic example of a policy where both sides are really using the language of rights. So obviously, parental rights on the government side, I believe that the legislation, which I haven't yet read, uh, that's going to be introduced today, is called the Parental Bill of Rights. And then my, my paper sort of goes through the myriad scope of different rights claims that the other side is using, LGBTQ rights, children's rights, rights to privacy, all sorts of different Rights. Um, and so, what scholars of the Charter have been saying for the last four decades is that this is what the Charter does it encourages us to think about contested, really difficult, really intractable policy issues in the language of rights. And the problem with thinking about things in the language of rights of rights is that you don't compromise on rights, right? If something's my right, I don't think of it as having a limit. I don't say, yes, it's my right, but I ought to um, uh, I ought to allow some variation here. Uh, and so it does really make for a, a sort of messy and polarized policy debate. And so this particular issue is one more than any that I've, I've seen for quite some time where both sides are really using the language of rights. And both sides are really using the language of rights without like a clear section of the Charter uh, or even a clear Supreme Court Court jurisprudence, sort of a clear case that would obviously apply to this particular policy issue, and that's what I find so so fascinating uh, about the, this issue and the use of the notwithstanding clause in it.
1: I guess it's also worth noting here that, I mean, there hasn't been a court ruling that struck down this law in Saskatchewan. There there was an injunction uh, that kind of ordered the government to take some more time to study all of this. But the point's been made about the preemptive use of the notwithstanding clause. But is that a meaningless distinction or, or is that a relevant uh, factor here?
3: Uh, I don't. I don't know if meaningless. I don't know if I'd go that far. But I have written before that I think that the, the use of the sort of preemptive versus responsive distinction uh, is overdone. And uh, I don't have the numbers right in front of me. But even if you don't count the three years from 1982 to 1985, uh, where Quebec invoked the notwithstanding clause for every single law that it passed uh, as a sort of way of protesting um, the uh, creation of the new constitution without its consent, mm-hmm. uh, even if you don't count those and those. Are obviously preemptive. Um, that the uh, I think it's 82 percent of the time that a legislature has invoked the notwithstanding clause in a bill that was passed. It wasn't reacting to a specific um, charter decision, uh, whether from the Supreme Court or another level of court. So preemptive use of the notwithstanding clause is nothing new. It's the norm. It's something that the creators of the charter fully understood would happen. And it's something that the Supreme Court said in 1988 uh, it fully expected to happen. Now, with respect to the Saskatchewan case in particular, I guess I'd say two things. One, this injunction really shows the the sort of messiness of the preemptive, preemptive and reactive distinction in that there was a court ruling, right? So is the government reacting to the court ruling? I would say, yes, it's literally reacting. It announced its decision the same day as mm-hmm. the injunction. Um, but it's not reacting to a specific striking down of a specific policy. Uh, so I grant that. Um, but the, uh, uh, the other aspect is that if you read the injunction closely, I think it's fairly clear that this particular justice, Justice McGaw, who, whose injunction I thought was sort of, um, you know, very well laid out, uh, understood and uh, uh, written in understandable language, um, his discussion of uh, the various points brought up by both sides, I would be very surprised uh, if Justice McGaw were to um, then subsequently in the full charter case uphold uh, uphold the uh, the policy as a reasonable limit on charter rights. So I'm not saying that the government read the case closely and then decided to uh, introduce a law invoking the notwithstanding clause. Just given the short time period, it probably didn't. Um, but I do think that this this constant refrain that you'll hear from critics of the notwithstanding clause that you should only wait until a judge fully rules on the issue and then. Sometimes people will say, and then it needs to be appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. uh, That really hamstrings legislatures and I think goes against uh, the original intention of the notwithstanding clause, which is to allow legislatures to... Uh, disagree with judicial interpretation of rights, including sort of longstanding judicial interpretations.
1: Now, a couple of points Then, I mean, I guess one, and this is almost political in a way, but it speaks to the, the fact that we have the charter in the first place that, you know, it probably wouldn't have been agreed upon had there not been Section 33. In that context, uh, if we sort of look at, you know, the existence of the charter, the inclusion of the notwithstanding clause, is it possible to have one without the other?
3: Yeah, I do think it's very true that at least in, in the early 1980s, that the premiers were not going to sign on, two premiers in particular, an NDP premier from Saskatchewan and a, a progressive conservative premier from, from Alberta, um, really said, you know, we, we need this inclusion of the notwithstanding clause uh, in this document um, There's sort of all sorts of history as to why that was necessary. There was a reasonable limit section that got watered down. But it was an important and necessary compromise that led to the creation of the Charter itself. Now, having said that, there are, again, many critics of the Notwithstanding Clause who, I think I I saw the term in the Globe and Mail recently, referred to it as a grubby last-minute compromise. And and actually looking at the historical evidence, the documentation, the memoirs of the premiers uh, and the um, political officials who were involved, uh, this was not... Not something grubby. It was not something last minute. It was debated for several years. It sort of drew from language from the 1960 uh, Bill of Rights, uh, and uh, and was something that you know these premiers of various different political persuasions uh, had very good reasons to be um, uh, to want to be able to have uh, a safety valve, if you were to be able to. Legislate um, on areas that they were worried the judiciary would go beyond. And it's not sort of your simple sort of a socially progressive judiciary today and you've got conservative premiers who want to push back. That has seemed to be the most common use of the notwithstanding clause recently. But for example, Saskatchewan Al- uh, Premier Alan Blakeney was really concerned that a, a future court, as the Supreme Court almost did in 2005, uh, would strike down bans on private health insurance, uh, which he saw as sort of instrumental to the maintenance of, of Saskatchewan and Canada's public health care system. So the idea of there are certain rights, there are certain values, there are certain policies that are not protected by the Charter, and we want to ensure um, that some future uh, judiciary will not be able to put those policies sort of beyond the realm of legislative authority. Uh, That was a really, you know, deep, deep aspect of political thought that led to the inclusion of the clause in the Charter.
1: Right. And I think the, you know, the, the other side of that argument, though, is that it's, it's not so much a safety valve as it, you know it's, it's an out clause that we have the, the charter that exists to put parameters around the kind of legislation that governments can exist to say it must exist within these confines of protecting rights. And then we have Section 33 that just kind of renders all of that moot if governments so choose. So what about that argument that it contradicts the very nature or point of having constitutionally guaranteed rights?
3: Well, I think that the, the i mean I do think that is a an argument that that is is common and and, uh, and and worth engaging with, but I think the very first section of the charter says you know these rights are subject to reasonable limits uh demonstrably justified uh, in a free and democratic society, so even without the notwithstanding clause. We have a constitutional document that recognizes our charter is all of the rights within it are subject to reasonable limits. Mm-hmm. Now, those limits tend to be determined um, by courts and by the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, but the fact that these these rights themselves have limits shows that that it is um, you know, not beyond the pale um, for someone to say, I'm going to disagree with this particular uh, judicial interpretation of rights. And I think that, you know, I could, we could go through the list of the notwithstanding clause, and I could say, here are the policies I like, and here are the policies I don't like. Uh, but I certainly think, even looking at the, I think it is now eight bills that have been introduced in the last five years by four different provincial governments invoking the clause. Um, these are not, you know, uh, taking away the right to vote, uh, taking away your right to um, uh, protest government policy, what we think of as sort of our most foundational right. And that is not to diminish either side of the debate in the gender pronoun policy, um, but they are Typically, even in the uses that I myself uh, am not fond of, they're involving reasonable disagreement, uh, different interpretations of rights, different ways of of weighing different rights. And so given the extent to which uh, the Charter has been interpreted in many instances on many policy issues, well beyond what uh, what anyone expected, as 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 one might expect 40 years down the line, we weren't thinking of everything back in, in 1982 that could possibly come in the future, that um, it is reasonable to say when we are invoking the notwithstanding clause, when a legislature invokes the notwithstanding clause uh, to disagree with judicial interpretation of rights, um, it is not saying we don't care about any of these rights in the Charter. And I do think the relative infrequency of the clause being invoked uh, speaks to that. It's not We have not seen... The Ontario government, the Saskatchewan government, insert the notwithstanding clause into every single bill uh, or anything like that. It is still quite infrequently invoked.
1: The papers online, as mentioned, McDonnellaurier.ca, and uh, this debate I'm sure will continue. But we certainly appreciate your insight and perspective uh, on all this. Dave, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Thanks for having me. OK, there you go. Dave Snow, uh, University of Guelph, associate professor of political science. Uh, this piece for the McDonald laurier Institute. You can find it at So I think it ramps up the stakes of this debate. Like it, when, when governments use the notwithstanding clause, it does come across as an admission that, yeah, what we're doing violates rights or violates the charter. But we're going to do it anyway. And if that's how it's going to come across and you feel like what they're doing here or you feel what Quebec has done has been unfair to religious minorities or language minorities, then it does ramp up the, uh, the emotion in the debate. It's a bit of a moot point in a way, though, I would argue, because what are we supposed to do? It's part of the charter. If we want to eliminate the notwithstanding clause, well, that means changing the constitution. And that's a whole other can of worms. So would it ever be realistic that we could get to that level, that bar that, that has to be clear to change the Constitution, only for this? I don't think so. Off the top in this hour, though, an issue the Canadians have been talking a lot about as of late, the issue of housing. And uh, the prime minister, in fact, was in Yellowknife making a, a housing announcement. And we've seen a lot of those. But it feels like we're just kind of tinkering on the, the edges here. And we're not really addressing the fundamental problem. And it's now a big one, where supply and demand are completely out of balance. And so it's no surprise that we've seen uh, housing costs significantly escalate. So a new report out today from the Fraser Institute quantifying that gap. And it's easy enough, I suppose, to look at Canada's population, how much we're adding to the population each year, and how many homes we're building. We've got the people. We don't have the houses. Our population grows. Our housing stock is not keeping up. So that gap is continuing to expand. And in fact, it's now at its highest point in the past 50 years. So that's a big problem. And not one that's going to be easily fixed. Joining us uh, to talk more about this report, very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, its author, Joseph uh, Filipowitz, is a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute, fraserinstitute.org. Joseph, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program.
4: Thanks for having me on the show.
1: So first of all, let's let's talk about what it is you're measuring here. And I, I guess this is straightforward enough that it's uh, we can look at how fast Canada's population is growing. We can look at how many homes we're building each year. So it's kind of a, a straight uh, comparison between the two?
4: Yes, exactly. What we did was we compared um, annual population growth, so the change in the number of people living in Canada every year, with the number of homes completed every year, so the amount of homes we built. Uh, and what we find found is that um, you know the the, the the you know the gap between demand and supply is not just bad. It's not just getting. It's not just you know worsening with every single year. It's 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 growing at a pace that we've not seen before. So last year pop, Canada's population grew by about a million people, but we only built about 220,000 homes. Wow. Um, so so that gap is is, is historical.
1: Yeah, that's a pretty huge gap. Uh, So we can look at these trends then and we can go back over previous periods of time. Uh, Like, how do we compare now to where we were at, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago or even even further back?
4: So between uh, 2018 and 2022, which is the last five years of of data, um, the population grew by an average of about 553,000 people per year. Uh, while only about 205,000 homes were built annually, so so that's a ratio of about two and a half to one. But back in the 1970s, it was closer to to one to one. In fact, um, uh, we we not only built, um, you know, more than 200,000 homes a year in the in the 1970s, but um, it, our population growth was roughly in the 300,000 range. Some uh, very often qu- uh, quite a bit lower, so a lot closer to one to one then than than is the case now. Um, so, so I think it's just jarring that we build the same, or or actually, in in some cases, some years less housing than we did in the 1970s. Now, um, yeah. uh, even though our you know our population is about a third bigger than it was then.
1: Yeah, that's that's pretty shocking. So, how did it get that way? I mean, you know, there there are two sides to this. The the population growth is a little more. I guess straightforward, and part of that is is policy choice in terms of you know how many newcomers uh, Canada welcomes each year. But I guess the question about why we're only building a certain number of houses each year that that's a little more complicated, I would imagine.
4: Well, absolutely. Um, it's uh, <laughs> this is a multifaceted crisis, and, and Canadians are right to demand solutions to it. Right, um, all governments have policy levers that affect both the demand. For housing and, and also the supply of housing um, and and you know on the ground municipalities determine the uh, the kinds of homes uh, that we have and how many of them are allowed to be built uh, but then you also have the, the federal government that, that's primarily responsible for for population growth notably through immigration policy and it's not very often that these two levels of government you know coordinate on these matters so so what we're what we're seeing now is is really you know a, a weak point in our federation that's 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 really coming to a head these days.
1: And I mean, it's not as so though we just woke up to this situation. I mean, it's, it's as bad as it's ever been, obviously, but it, it does seem as though we were headed in this direction. Like, it, in hindsight, I guess, uh, maybe we would have been better off trying to address this crisis five or ten years ago than, than wait until now.
4: I couldn't agree more. I mean, unfortunately, things you know really have to get bad for for i mean, the fact that the federal government is now is now talking about this issue despite the fact they don't have the strongest levers when it comes to housing supply. the fact that it's become their problem, uh, i think is 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 a testament to how bad things have gotten right this is not this is not a local issue that's manifesting itself in certain years and in certain cities like say Toronto or vancouver this is a this is a national problem and and unfortunately, um, you know, it 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 had to get to this stage for for all three levels of government to start talking about it. So so now the next step is they have to coordinate to to get more homes built or or to just you know uh, manage this gap between between uh, supply and demand.
1: Well, that's that's the big issue. I mean, it's it's basic economics, but, uh, you know, it's hard to get uh, affordability when we've got supply and demand so out of balance. And I know governments are trying to tweak all of this with very various policies. But I guess unless we can address that fundamental imbalance, we're really not going to get these these prices under control, are we?
4: No, absolutely not. I mean, uh, with, with, you know, every every new policy that's introduced, because, of course, there's 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 impetus now to introduce new policies. It's really important to ask of, of each proposal, um, you know, does it restrict supply? Does it does it juice demand? Because if it does either of those things, it's, it's not going to solve our problem. In fact, it's going to make make things worse.
1: Are, are you seeing any signs that we're turning a corner here that that policymakers are, are waking up to this this crisis? Like, has is, is there been any sea change here in terms of actually seriously trying to address this?
4: well I I certainly think that at least on the communications front we're seeing a lot more and 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 you know in fairness we we are seeing a lot more policy activity there's been a flurry of of, of activity especially at the provincial level in in Ontario and, and it looks like that's going to be the case in, in BC soon but but you know governments are starting with a with a with a real lag um, the problem is enormous and and you know it's it's getting worse that's what the data are showing so so unfortunately um, you know it's, it's certainly good that that more attention is being brought to this problem. Uh, but I think that we're still in the tinkering mode when, when what's really needed is a big bang when it, when it, when it comes to policy solutions.
1: Well, and, and we have the two sides of it, and I mean, you know, reducing demand is is never ideal. I suppose higher prices or higher mortgage rates, you know, kind of have that effect. But ultimately, we do get into the realm of policy decisions around immigration, and and that can be sensitive. And I mean, you know, there's the whole point: the candidate is going to need immigration in, in years ahead to to keep, try to keep productivity levels where they need to be. So. Can we address the demand side? Does it inevitably have to land on on the supply side and figuring out how to to add more supply, or how do we address this?
4: Well, I think you know, at its root, this this gap is caused by governments not communicating. We're we're now in a situation where the the federal government has the most direct control over housing demand, while provinces and municipalities have the most direct control over housing supply, and yeah. and unfortunately, they they don't coordinate. So, I, I think whatever you know, whatever approach. Is taken, um, there needs to be, there needs to be coordination because, you know, if, if, if there's going to be changes to, you know, for example, um, uh, like a, or, or not not just immigration but but um like home building policies all the like the plans the long term plans that that provinces and local governments put together to get homes built they 're going to have to take into account long term growth and and, and and on the federal government' side they 're going to have to to make these numbers predictable because we 've seen huge increases in the last five six years, and there 's no way that these increases are reflected in local government 's plans so i think it's it 's essential that uh, whatever is whatever is, whatever option is taken all governments need to be on board and and, and aware of what each other are doing because otherwise they're just going to be at cross-purposes.
1: Right. And I mean, you know, as much as this is or should be a wake-up call, as much as we're seeing more conversation around these issues, um, you know, there's no guarantee that things are going to improve, right? Is there still a possibility, as bad as this gap is right now, as wide as it is, that that it could still worsen in the years ahead?
4: Um, It's really hard to, to to see, you know, how this is going to play out, it's just jarring that, that we have um, kind of the, the, the record gap that we have today. So perhaps two years ago, we would have seen, we would have already been you know, uh, in a situation where there's an enormous uh, gap between demand and supply. And, and, and could, we have, could we have foreseen it getting larger? No, uh, I don't think so. So, so I mean, I, I can say today that I don't see it getting any larger, but I could
1: easily be proven wrong. Right. Well, let's, uh, let's hope for the best as we move forward here. But uh, as mentioned, should be a wake-up call, some important new data. It's called Canada's Growing Housing Gap at uh, FraserInstitute.org. Joseph, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. really appreciate it.
4: Thanks for having me on the show, Rob.
1: Okay, there you go. Joseph Filipowicz, uh Senior Fellow with the Fraser Institute, uh, author of this report, which you can read, as mentioned, FraserInstitute.org. But, yeah, and it's pretty bleak. So, yeah, let's let's certainly hope that, you know, we don't somehow manage to back ourselves into an even bleaker situation five years from now. But I don't know. We we got ourselves into this situation. So it's hard to find optimism these days on this issue for sure. New report out today from the Clean Prosperity Institute looking at how Alberta can be a player an important player in a decarbonizing world. And the assumption maybe going into this is that Alberta is uh, an oil and gas economy, a fossil fuel economy, and that we're going to be left behind when it comes to a a, a decarbonizing world. But this report says that's not the case. That yes, there's certainly a lot of competition when it comes for that sort of investment. But I think already as we've seen, Alberta has has attracted uh, its share and then some of uh, investment into uh, cleaner energy. So this report from the uh, Clean Prosperity Institute looks at how Alberta can continue to close that gap with other jurisdictions and how Alberta can be uh, a real balanced uh, energy superpower. So joining us uh, to talk more about this report, which you can find at cleanprosperity.ca. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. Uh, The report's co-author, Adam Sweet, who is Western Canada Director for Clean Prosperity. Adam, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Great to be back. So let's talk about the, you know, kind of the the backdrop to all of this. Uh, Where Alberta's at, where you know, in particular, the United States is at, but other jurisdictions when it comes to, you know, this emerging alternative energy industry?
5: Yeah, so the global race for low-carbon investment uh, is on. Um, we, The nice thing for Alberta is that we have everything that we need, uh, almost everything we need to compete in this environment and, and to truly become a diversified energy powerhouse. Um, one thing I do want to add on that is it's it's not just about you know, low carbon energy, but it's also about how do we continue to ensure that our existing oil and gas assets are being used, um, are able to meet that that demand that exists in the world, um, and be used to transform into these these new forms of energy, such as you know hydrogen, blue ammonia, um, these sorts of things. Now, while that race is on, and Alberta is well positioned, we have uh, some competitors who. Uh, who've really taken some big steps. You know, the U.S. has their Inflation Reduction Act in which they are essentially, um, you know, buying first-class tickets for any investor who wants to to do this sort of investment. We also have Saudi Arabia, for example, really moving quickly on hydrogen. And so there's a situation in which Alberta's positioned, um, and we can win this race, but we have some key moves that we need to make and we need to make them right away.
1: So is it primarily the the u s that we're in a race with, or you know who who are the other players or competitors here
5: yeah we the, our our research really focused on the u s given um, that many of these markets are con- are connected uh, when we 're looking at this space um, there are certainly other when we talk about the the, the, the global aspect of this. That is a piece that we have to be concerned because once those projects are established and those purchase orders are made, um, it becomes much more challenging to to argue to create you know these these new capital projects in Alberta. So we're in a space right now where we want to um, get these projects established in Alberta to be able to meet that demand that's growing, and the U.S. is is our main competitor. You know what they've done with the Inflation Reduction Act is essentially said we're we are going to get a production tax credit um to investors in, in particular key areas so for example carbon capture and storage um, or in hydrogen development and they said well, if you were coming you set up your plant here in or, or you, you make this investment here in the us we will give you a guaranteed or we what we're calling a bankable um amount of money that you can take to a financer and and put into your your project uh your 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 project's business plan what's happened in alberta unfortunately is we don't have necessarily that certainty Um, Instead, we have the tier carbon credit market, and what we're arguing is, you know, in order to compete, we actually don't—Alberta doesn't need to come to the table with billions of dollars and try to compete with the U.S. Treasury. Instead, what we can do is bring uh, certainty around future revenues in that carbon credit market that we've had since 2007. And that actually creates a certainty for investors to know that their project will generate the revenues they need, and therefore we can compete with the United States without having to bring billions of dollars to bear.
1: Yeah, because I think some think or, or fear that this is a, you know a subsidies arms race, but that's not the path you're advocating here. In fact, uh, that, that in many ways this is an argument against big subsidies.
5: It is, you know, in some ways it's, it's almost like. Uh, do you remember the Amazon uh, second headquarters race? Oh yeah, yes. it was. You know, <laughs> There's, You know, the United States has decided to say we're just going to throw money at this big problem and see kind of what we can attract. You know, that's, that, that's never been uh, a really efficient approach, and that's not one we would advocate for. I'd also say it's, you know, not an Albertan approach to just throw money at it. Instead, it's actually how do we, how do we come together and, and, and create a plan um, and figure out, you know, how do we move this path forward? What we're advocating for is a thing called the Carbon Contract for Difference. And what that would do is create certainty in what's called the tier carbon credit market which again has existed since 2007 in alberta and will allow investors to go to financiers in the bank and say look we have guarantee we have have what's called a contract for difference that'll guarantee us that we will have a certain set of revenue when we sell these credits um, and that we can actually bank on that uh, moving forward and so what we're advocating for is to say Alberta can create certainty in the market and that actually meets, the it creates in some cases, actually creates an advantage um, for investors over setting up in the United States in areas like blue ammonia or in cement, or sorry, carbon capture and storage on cement. Or, you know, as we've talked a lot, there's a big discussion right now around natural gas-fired electricity. If we can create certainty through this carbon contract for difference, we could actually create an advantage for investors to set up in Alberta over the United States and not have to bring billions of dollars to bear.
1: Let's talk about the, the technology innovation and emissions reduction regulation that Alberta's had, I think going back as far as, as 2007. So um, this is Alberta's carbon pricing system then, correct? That's correct. So how would then these these credits and these contracts be tied into those regulations?
5: So currently um emitters pay into the the tech, the, the tier fund right. um for certain amounts and not to go too technical on it, but they, they put a they put a piece into that and they there's credits that are traded if they can't meet their emissions standards and so those credits have a value in them. And an yeah, they have a, a value in them, and so what a carbon contract for difference would do would be between you know, the government um, and uh, you know a, a either an emitter or somebody who's creating carbon credits by having a low carbon project, and they would say, look, so we, we think the you know we, we know the industrial carbon price is going to be 170 bucks a ton in 2030. We expect that the the credit will trade for 150 bucks. Let's say. And uh, so this would be the contract. People would have to figure this all out. But let's say it's going it's to trade for about one hundred fifty dollars in twenty thirty because the credit would trade for less than the price. And the government does an agreement with the producer and says, "Look, if it's one hundred fifty bucks, the so if it's one hundred fifty one dollars, you owe us a dollar per ton. Mm-hmm. If it's one hundred forty nine dollars, we owe you a dollar per ton. And if it's within the range of one hundred fifty, mm-hmm. then the contract just becomes null and void and it expires. So you have this guaranteed revenue going forward." The way we can describe it is, it's like Mother Nature taking out crop insurance. You now, the government has, can, can control um, the general market by how, how many credits are, are needed by emission standards and various things. But what this does is create certainty for that low-carbon producer to know that they can go back to a financer or to an investor and say, look, we, we know we'll have this guaranteed revenue you know, from now until 2030 or further out. Um, so you know we can we can invest in the project, and from a government perspective, the government doesn't actually have to put any money out into it unless the credit the credit price is lower than it would need to be. But the government can help to influence what that carbon price, what that credit price is going to be, by the emissions standards that they set. Mm-hmm. So that's where the government can kind of control whether or not they're actually gonna be paying out in this space. But it creates certainty for investors, and at the end of the day. Should actually cost uh, incredibly minimally, just basically the the, the execution of the car co- or the, the development of the contract itself.
1: So you see that then as, well, I guess much less risky, but but more efficient than more direct subsidies.
5: Hundred percent. It's also I would argue a more of a free market approach. You know, this is not about government giving out handouts. It's not about government providing incentives um, that are you know cash basis. Is instead saying, look, we've created an even playing field. Um, For everybody to be in here, but we know that there's a lot of questions about the industrial carbon price There's a lot of questions about the future So we are going to engage in agreement with you, you know energy investor and say look um, We commit that we're not going to change things in this particular period of time We're not going to influence this market negatively in this period of time. You can go and get financing and develop your project and by the way you'll actually make more money doing it here in Alberta than you will in the United States And we can do that in a way that's not actually costing taxpayers uh, money like they're doing in the United States or in other places around the world.
1: So can Alberta do this more or less on its own or does this require a, a role for the federal government?
5: So the federal government announced in the, the most recent budget that they were going to do some consultations around uh, carbon car, carbon contracts for difference. Um, our view is so they, they were supposed to launch those consultations. They're, they're still kind of being held up. So we're actually going to have a webinar here next week. People can take a look on cleanprosperity.ca and, and see more details on that. Where we're going to talk about the consultations and essentially what industry and interested people can do. But our main push is to say that you know if we can do it from the federal government with um kind of a broad-based approach as opposed to um you know specific province by province that would be the most efficient way to do it um also the you know the the the, the you, if you create that project from a federal perspective um it just makes it more stand, it, it'll be more standardized across the country We're, we, are, we are advocating for the province to to work with the feds and to say look we need to push this forward this is important we know that there are a number of projects um, in Alberta that are ready to go tomorrow if they could get certainty through a carbon contract for difference. So we're calling on the provincial government to, to work with the federal government and advance this, these contracts for difference. And if they can't, or if that's not going to be possible, to then look to implement a provincial program itself, um, which could be, you know, backstop using the tier, the tier revenue, for example.
1: But back to what we talked about at the outset, Adam, what's the risk of of not embracing this opportunity? What's the risk of the status quo or or allowing other jurisdictions to pull further ahead of us?
5: So, you know, when I look at the future of Alberta, I look at it as a a place that continues to be a a global diversified energy powerhouse. And so, while that means that we need to continue to develop our oil and gas resources and get the best price for market, or sorry, best price um, and, and best access to market for those existing resources, the reality is that we know that um, you know there there will be a decline in demand uh, for oil and gas, and there's going to be an increase in things like demand for hydrogen, sustainable aviation fuel, um, and other other things such as that. And so. We want to ins- I-, I would like to see a situation uh, in which Alberta is helping to set the price, the global price for those new, for those new forms of energy. Um, and you know, we- we not just to meet our emissions reduction, but actually to be able to, to be market leaders in this space. Not just for revenue, but also for you know we we develop we have some of the, the best talent in the world um, in this in in these sectors, and I'd like to see Alberta be able to lead the way in um, the development of that technology and be able to you know, sell our our, uh, our expertise um, around the world and help the rest of the world develop these these technologies as well.
1: Much more as mentioned, cleanprosperity.ca. Adam, thanks so much. Make some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it.
5: Thanks for the
1: opportunity. Have a great day. You too. There you go. That is Adam Sweet, uh, Clean Prosperity's Western Canada Director, based in Edmonton, the co-author of this report, calling on the Alberta government to, to take what it already has with the tier regulations uh, and use that as the starting point for carbon contracts and credits, which they say is a much less risky and a much more efficient way of encouraging this kind of, of investment and innovation.
0: him to feel safe and that it was a great place for him to live did you ever think you would be free i hoped
3: <laughs>
0: hello jack thanks for saving our little girl are we another planet Mm-mm. same one just a different spot
1: from the trailer for the 2015 movie "Room," which was based on the 2010 bestseller, also called "Room," uh, the film landed uh, its star Brie Larson, an Academy Award. Uh, the author of the book, who was also the author of the screenplay, was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, so it's a book that really put Emma Donahue on the map, uh, but has had a few bestsellers, uh, and has a new book out. It's called "Learned By Heart." and is among uh, five finalists for the Atwood Gibson Writers' Trust Fiction Prize. Uh, Emma Donahue is going to be here in Calgary this weekend, part of WordFest Imaginarium. Uh, two events she'll be part of, one tomorrow night and one on Saturday. Uh, more details at WordFest.com. But joining us to talk about her latest book, about everything else uh, going on in her world, and as mentioned, the appearance coming up this weekend here in Calgary, the aforementioned Emma Donahue on the line with us here this afternoon. Emma, so great to have you with us. Welcome to the program.
0: I feel the same way. Nice to be with you.
1: Let's talk about the new book. It is called Learned by Heart, as mentioned. And so this is interesting from, from a writer's perspective because this is a, a fictional tale about uh, someone who actually existed. And we have this, this diary of Anne Lister, who, who lived uh, back in the 19th century, a, a story you've been fascinated with for quite some time, as I understand. So how did this all come together?
0: Yeah, the Anne Lister diary has been described as the longest diary in the English language. It's about 5 million words, and it should have been fully published a long time ago except the the scandalous content basically made publishers afraid of it. So even right. now it's on, it's only available, you know, in in transcriptions online through the library. Um because she had affairs with many women, And she recorded everything very frankly and uh, eloquently in a secret code she invented, made of Greek letters and numbers. She was a very brilliant polymath. So the analyst's diaries are extraordinary. But in a way, I set myself the challenge of writing a kind of a backstory for this kind of, you know, gender defying, rule breaking um, superhero I wanted to write about her when she was 14 at boarding school, because that's when she fell madly in love with the girl who was assigned to her attic room, Eliza Rain, who was a biracial heiress straight from India. So um, I'm fascinated by by the bit that Anne Lister's diary doesn't cover, which is this first love affair, the first time she fell madly in love and just thought, you know, conventions be damned. I, I have to follow my heart.
1: Well, there is something remarkable about this story, as you say, given the, the time of the period and, and who she was and, and who she was, was kind of trying to be or felt that is, you know, she could be at, at that time. We think about all these issues in a very modern context uh, and, you know, the, the struggles of, of coming out and coming to grips with, with who you are and living your true self. I mean, what would that have been like in, in the 19th century?
0: I think that's what makes the story of Eliza Reyna and Anne Lister irresistible to tell for a modern audience because they can sound remarkably modern when they're mulling over, you know, what it is to be... And, you know, Anne Lister saw herself as as, as being not like other ladies, very much masculine, but said she didn't want to be a man. So she described herself as the connecting link between the sexes or she kind of joked in her diaries about maybe nature was in an odd mood the day she made me. (laughs) And then Eliza Reyna as this biracial heiress, she she was in this really strange position of being like a you know, a high status posh girl in nineteenth century England and yet one of the only brown faces around in the north of England where she was sent to boarding school. Um, so these two outsiders happened to get stuck in an attic room together and and fell madly in love. And I just I think that makes their story a terribly modern one because these questions of sort of parsing the subtleties of your identity and working out how to survive in a very conformist society, you know, they can they can uh, really appeal to modern readers especially as Eliza Rain as the point of view character she has a lot of struggles with um, mental illness and again that's something that young people today are just so open and honest about
1: yeah so how do you approach this then as as a novelist and in telling a story which is what you do but also now there's the historical component uh so there's the the you know the research side and maybe there's almost um a burden you carry or a duty you carry here to, to do right by this historical no, I figure?
0: I absolutely do feel duty to do right. You, you, put, your, you put your finger on it there. Um, I don't know why I give myself this double task. Mostly <laughs> when I write historical fiction, is based on real lives, and real lives are totally forgotten or neglected or hard done by people who I feel are relying on me to tell their story honestly and to dig up these lost facts. So I'm not writing about the famous. Um, so it is double work, and how I approached it was slowly. I really first got the idea for this novel about thirty years ago, and um, I've been working oh, wow. on it more seriously since about twenty fifteen, but um, you know, interspersed with my other tasks. But um, I, I certainly had to work slowly because. It took a lot of digging to work out even the basic facts about Eliza Rain's life. And she, rather than the more famous Anne Lister, she ended up being the perspective of the novel because I just found her... She had such an interesting angle on British society because, you know, because she was... You know, simultaneously moving in these rich circles, but also stigmatized as the illegitimate orphan with an Indian mother. You know, she really saw the kind of social undercurrents. She she was aware of things that others wouldn't have noticed. So, yeah, I did a huge amount of research. But then, of course, you have to be willing to throw much of it away and just always look for the tiny little details that really speak to character.
1: Is it almost surprising that you kind of got here first? Like you know, this 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 has all been known. This this material, if you want to call it that, has all, all been out there for others to explore, either in this sense or or in a straight sort of uh, nonfiction retelling of all of this. Why, why is there such a void here?
0: I don't know why she's been so neglected, um, Eliza Rain. Uh, there's been a lot of attention paid to other points in Ann Lister's life for him for instance the wonderful TV show Gentleman Jack is about Ann Lister in her 40s and her, her last relationship but of all Ann Lister's women and I say all because there were about a dozen I really do think Eliza Rayne is the most interesting so I'm you know all those years I was working on the novel I of assumed somebody else would get there first but they happened but you know when I, when I write novels um based on real people, I always offer a big historical note at the end, because what I'm really trying to do is share my sources. I'm not trying to to hog these stories. I'm saying, you know, please, somebody else write about them too. I would love to see Eliza Rain's story explored by other people and from different angles, because, you know, I, I get a huge amount of help from others when I'm writing my novels, and I feel that I want my novels to be equally useful, you know, to to future biographers and dramatists and so on. So um, I see it as a great big kind of, you know, info swap. And um, really, this novel is partly crowdsourced, I would say, because there were sources I just couldn't get a hold of myself. And volunteers transcribed the letters for me, you know, that bewildering 19th century handwriting. So I actually couldn't have written this novel without the help of people I've never met in person far away.
1: I mean, the feeling of completing a book or completing a project must be tremendously rewarding you know, in, in in all cases, but something like this, then, given the, you know, the the stakes, given the importance of the topic, given how difficult it proved to be in some ways, what was what was that finish line like this time?
0: This was an even huger relief than usual, yeah, because the novel was very slow to grow, because so many people helped me. I really had a feeling that I was kind of dragging, dragging a long forgotten into the light and it's just wonderful now to be able to to see its kind of ripples to see people coming across it and to, to do public events and um you know engage in a kind of great big international conversation about these hidden lives of the 19th century so um yeah I have to say i I, I don't think I've ever been quite so satisfied by finally getting a novel out there and <laughs> you know um Feeling that it's not just it's not just my novel, but it's taking part in a much huger conversation about all the lives of people of colour and queers in the past. It's mm-hmm. been it's been a great great moment. You,
1: you've written about these topics before. Obviously, has has the as the audience grown? Is there more of a, a willingness or an appetite even for for these kinds of stories? What what have you noticed in your own career and? You know, in in terms of your own fame and stature too, especially after Room, I mean, has that given you a little more clout in in exploring these topics?
0: I guess. So um, it, it's hard to tell. Uh, I think in my own case, the big difference was since Room, my books get more readers. So more people are just willing to take a chance on whatever strange story I've dug up
2: <laughs> um, right.
0: because perhaps they enjoyed Room. Um, so it certainly helps me. But also, as you say, there's been a big social change. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know the, the gentleman, Jack TV show, the wonderful British writer Sally Wainwright was trying to make that show for about 20 years and just could not get it funded. And then there was kind of a magical moment and um, when suddenly it was considered like, oh, this could be of wide ma- mainstream interest. And um, I think we all like to write that are different from our own. People are not just looking for echoes of their own lives or, you know, their own con- con- conventions. Um, I-, I think people have a hunger for for what's hidden, what's different, what's remarkable. So, um, yeah, I find it very heartening that there's more and more interest. Um, and, um, yeah, I hope that continues. And I hope the, the you know, the kind of wave of... Um, Uh, right-wing backlash in the States we've seen with all those book bannings. I really hope that proves to be a a temporary phenomenon and that it doesn't manage to stake any claim in in Canada because I think Canada, as an immigrant, I'm so aware that it's it's a country that has benefited hugely from diverse immigrants and, you know, that the the, the melting pot of Canada has been such a a plus for all of us, you know, from food through to books through to neighbours. Um, we we all benefit from from having you know fresh elements in the mix.
1: We talked about Rumen and, and the book. I think came out in in 2010, I believe, and it wasn't uh, it was 2015 when when the movie came out. Um, at what point did you feel like maybe your life had kind of changed? Like this this was a, at a whole different kind of level. Was was that kind of obvious to you in in real time, or what was that whole process?
0: Like? Yeah, I think uh, the day I got. And you know, it's funny, you might think a long list is not a big deal, but when I got long listed for the Booker Prize, I was suddenly more in demand than I yeah. ever had been. So just, and I was in the middle of a family holiday, and I remember trying to do phone interviews on a really bad early cell phone from a grocery store parking lot in France (laughs) and it's funny you know writers are always longing for more publicity until the day they make it big and then suddenly they're like oh no too much publicity (laughs) it's hard to get that perfect level (laughs) but yes and Room did did make a huge difference to me and one thing it did was it opened the doors of the film world because the film world can be really hard to get into it can seem very mysterious and closed to outsiders it's full of jargon so um Room basically gave me the chance to to get films made. And it's still not always easy. I've only had two made so far, but between Room and The Wonder I've been able to work with the most astoundingly talented actors and um and um directors and producers. So I've had two really good experiences so far. So, you know, in a writing career that began at about 20, it's, it's wonderful, more than three decades on to feel that, you know, fresh opportunities are arising and I'm getting to try new new, new, new genres and reach new audiences.
1: Is, is it more freedom? Is it more pressure? Is it, is it both, maybe?
0: Both of those, I suppose. But I, my publishers are great. They've never set us, they never said write a secret room or write right. something like room. I mean, they may, they may, they may hope for it. But <laughs> right. No, they they don't tell me what to write, and uh, mostly I perceive it as more freedom. Actually, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the big thing is that I've been able to write full-time since I was about 23, so that, to me, is a big luxury. So, you know, Room didn't make any difference there. I was already living my very best life getting to do this stuff full-time, you know?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, as we mentioned, the uh, latest novel is called Learned by Heart. Uh, it has been shortlisted, as uh, mentioned as well, for the Outwood Gibson Writers' Trust Fiction Prize, and uh, you'll be here in Calgary. Two events coming up later this week. Part of WordFest, Imaginarium, com. all the details. I think one of those shows is sold out. It's tickets still available for the events on the 14th and it's been a real pleasure and an honor thank you so much for making some time for us here today me too there you go. That's a uh, best-selling author, award-winning author, Oscar-nominated writer, Emma Donahue, uh, Her latest book, uh, Learned by Heart, and uh, more details at wordfest.com. On her two appearances here in Calgary this weekend. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, Rob, at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.